The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, you can just call me Whitney Seibold. Yeah. You can just call me Whitney. I'm very casual. Anyway, uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, you're reviewing a whole bunch of new movies. We're reviewing Proxima, Let Him Go, Attack of the Demons, Operation Christmas Drop, and Holidate. Is Operation Christmas Drop a sequel to Operation Dumbo Drop? To find out, you'll have to listen to the review. Ah, way to tease it in. All right. Uh, also, this week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where Whitney and I are taking the opportunity while theaters are closed to really dig in deeper into the various streaming options and watch some old movies that one or both of us have never seen before. Uh, and those movies are selected over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, by our various patrons, and we're mm. grateful to every single one of you. And uh, this, we, we, we run polls. We run polls every single week, and this week the winner was Fiddler on the Roof on Netflix. It is the highest grossing movie of 1971, mm-hmm. if memory serves. Uh, which, so up, up uh, for a bunch of Oscars, cultural touchstone, famous musical. Yeah, and somehow and a, I and never a, saw it. And a childhood favorite of mine, as oh, it turns out. So, yeah. Well, I look forward to talking to you about mm. that, because somehow I just, I, I, I never saw it. Yeah, uh, so we'll talk about that in the second half of the program. Uh, before we get going, yeah. We, we, Stuff, we, we don't know. have to do anything before we get going. Let's no, just get we, going. We could, yeah. we, you want to talk about like, what happened this week? It was kind of a big week. There's, not, there's nothing in the news. Um, Moving on. They're making a Spider-Man movie. That's the big news a of the Spider-Man week, yeah. movie? Then it'll never come out. So they, I don't know why they're bothering, but okay. there you go. Anyway, let's talk about uh, some movies. Let's talk about a movie that both you and I saw. It mm. is from a major filmmaker. It is starring Ava Green. It is a astronaut drama mm. called Proxima. Whitney, yes. tell us about Proxima. <laughs> but, I, I was waiting for you to add right. something. No, I was just waiting for you to finish your intro. I was um, waiting for you this to is... wait for me. <laughs> <sighs> this is from uh, Alice, Win- I think it's pronounced Winokur. Winokur. Yeah. Uh, she's a French filmmaker. She did Mustang, which she, I missed. She wrote Mustang. But she wrote um, it. And Mustang is quite good. I really, really like the film Mustang. It's about a, a group of uh, teen and preteen girls who... Uh, after playing with some boys one day on the beach, uh, their fam- their very repressive family uh, decides that they have to be locked inside until they can arrange marriages for all of them mm-hmm. and how that sort of erodes their souls and turns them from free, open human beings into uh, victims of, uh, of horrendous misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's right. She pro- directed Augustine and Disorder. Those are the feature films she's done. Yeah, yeah. She, okay. she's, she, she's got a, a good number of films under her belt. Yeah. Uh, 
Proxima is also about a misogynist system. Uh, it is about Ava Green. She plays an astronaut. She's been selected or is on the cusp of being selected to go to Mars. And uh, she and the film is just pretty much a straightforward dramatization of that process of how she has to train for this, of all of the doubt and pain that goes into the process. And importantly, what is going to happen to her daughter mm-hmm. when she goes on this trip, which is essentially going to take up the rest of her life. Uh, uh, I, don't, I forget if they actually say how how long it will be. It will be a long ass it's, time. It's it's more than a few years. Yeah, it's she's going to be, and her daughter is in elementary school. Her daughter mm. is in her formative years. This isn't like saying goodbye to your eighteen year old. This is saying goodbye and missing your daughter's childhood, or at mm. least a huge chunk of it. So a, a lot of the film revolves around uh, negotiating with her ex husband mm. and how uh, she is emotionally going to deal with this. Uh, kind of quest she's put herself on Mm -hmm. to go into space and do this very uh, noble and difficult thing at the sacrifice of essentially everything in her earthly life. Yeah. Um, And she's encounters a lot of systemic misogyny in the form of uh, a Dylan, Matt Dylan in this case, specifically Matt Dylan, um, Matt Dylan, who is a Dylan, like try to guess which one I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. It's not Kevin Dylan. Is it Dylan McDermott? (laughs) Matt Dillon, who is, um, I'm sure, a perfectly decent person in real life, but he's so good at playing dicks yeah. in movies. Like, he plays jerks really I, I th- uncannily. I think ever since Crash, he's been that's been kind of his M.O. Like, he used to do all kinds of different characters, but ever since Crash, he's mm. really... And he got an Oscar nomination for Crash. And he's really good in Crash. I don't like mm. that movie. He's really good in that well, there's, there's plenty of fine performances. Yeah. It's just a bad film. I think. Yeah, I think he's... Fascinating in that film, and I think that he extends a, a surprising amount of his own sympathy and empathy to people who in real life would just be dicks. Yeah. And, and that really, and here he plays like the leader of the mission, like mm-hmm. the storied American astronaut uh, who has this new uh, cadet, this new crew member coming aboard. And he, the first thing he says in public, like in a speech, is I'm so glad we have this French astronaut uh, joining us because I hear they're great in the kitchen. Yeah. Fr- and everyone's French, like, ah. women, French women are great cooks, he says. And, uh-huh. and uh, you can see, like, Ava Green uh, gives maybe her best performance I've ever seen from her uh, in this I've movie. Best I've ever seen. She's amazing. And, uh, and Ava Green is the type of actress I've always liked seeing in really bad movies because she is completely willing to ham it up. Mm-hmm. She has, uh, like, fight sex with a guy in that 300 sequel. Hell, she has um, fight sex with Johnny Depp in Dark Shadows. They, yeah, like, destroy an office building together. Yeah, like, they're having sex on the ceiling because they're both vampires and they can fly around. Yeah. Uh, and she has made a, a pretty career of being the best part of a lot of uh, bad or strange movies. Pretty good career. A gr- that's, yeah. You said pretty career, which a, is an odd way of putting it. Pretty tidy career. <sighs> And uh, here she's not hamming it up. Here yeah. she's actually giving a very understated performance. Well, she's uh, got, so when she's she, got uh, to. Like, she's got to hold so much in. She's got to, like, mm. put her best foot forward and be, mm. like, who she needs to be in interviews and such. And we see this from the perspective of her daughter, who just wants to hang out with her mom. Yeah. And her mom isn't present. She's there, but she's not present. She's constantly, like training for the mission, mm. worrying about her schedule, trying to take care of everything so that her daughter will be taken care of while she's in space. There's a wonderful bit where she's um, 
she, she the series of training she's in takes her from different places. Like mm. initially she's in Paris, then they have to move her to somewhere outside of Moscow, and then she's got to be in quarantine for several weeks mm. before finally she gets to go on the mission. And while she's in Moscow, and there it's just concentrated intense training for I assume months. I, f- I forget the timeline, but it's a long, long time. She gets her daughter to visit. And she just tries to do everything she's doing to be an astronaut with her daughter in the room. Mm. Because it makes her feel better just to be in around her daughter. But that's not what her daughter needs. She needs her mom to be present mm-hmm. in order to feel like this is proper family time. And that ultimately tie, you know, gives us, I think, a really wonderful finale here. In which Ava Green understands that if she's going to make any difference in her child's future at this point... She needs to step up right now and take whatever chance she can get. Yeah. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. And and there is uh, like a a dramatic event at the climax, but it's, that's not really the point of the movie. The point is just sort of her, it's it's her emotional journey. And uh, I said she gave a very understated performance and you said that, yeah, she had to hold everything in and that's where all of her acting comes. Yeah. uh, Where she has to stay really uh, kind of stone-faced in the face of all of this struggle that she's really going through. Mm-hmm. And Ava Green is uh, wonderful mm-hmm. at expressing how much pain she's going through without without outwardly expressing it a lot. Yeah. Uh, this isn't like that film Lucy in the Sky. Which I missed. Which, I uh, which was really sort of... I don't want to call it broad and melodramatic because it's actually really arch and arty, but... Uh, <laughs> It is sort of more, uh, it's almost more operatic where there's like a lot of big musical cues and all this abstract filmmaking and shifting aspect ratios. And they're really trying to get into her emotional headspace. This one feels almost like a film by the Dardens. Yeah. And how much suffering there is. It's technically like, it's obviously in the future because we're not making man trips to Mars anytime soon. Mm. But that's really incidental. And it's basically just an excuse to give... Ava Green, like, this could be a story of any working mom. Mm. It really could. Like, any working parent, even. Just the struggle, the constant struggle of trying to be a good parent, not just providing for your child and taking care of their future, but being there for your child, while also having your own pursuits and your own dreams and your own goals. Mm. But when the goal is as lofty as being a trailblazing astronaut... I feel like it makes us a little bit more sympathetic to Ava Green. Like, she's mm-hmm. trying to do something. She's trying to achieve, like, his- history-making human greatness. And yet, we do also see it from the daughter's perspective. And we just see that, like, this is something that every working parent, mm-hmm. and even non-working parents, every parent has had to find a balance of. And so, yeah, the pro- astronaut... Provide, provide for your child, but sometimes you're away from your child. Well, and just have your own life and your own mm. per- and your own purpose, and outside of being a family member, which, yeah, that's enough as it is, but, like, people want more. By... It basically, the astronaut thing just becomes, like, this really perfect backdrop for it. Because, again, it's not, we don't go to Mars... It's not about going to well, Mars. It's about is, what you do while you're here. This is using a, sort of a science fiction uh, to give an extreme example. Exactly. She, she's sacrificing exactly. so much for her, her child that she's literally not going to be there. She's yeah. but literally like, off the planet. But like, I feel like if this was like her, you know, 
I don't know. I really want to start my own art supply store. I think people would be like, just spend more time with your kid. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, it'll take a few and, extra years. Who cares? Like, no, if this is actually in, like a yeah. lot writing on this. And if the whole a, planet's writing on if this. If it were an American film, we would have had that story about, Probably. oh, no, I'm, I, here's what I can give. And this is what I'm going to, and it's going to, would have been a lot more dramatic. Um, this is a lot more character driven. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's a lot more, uh, uh, a story of emotions and moods. Mm. Rather than a story, and it's a real gift to Ava mm. Green. Like it's yeah, just yeah. such she, a wonderful. She was role nominated for, her. for a César for this one. Oh, so really? the, the French Oscars. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, I well, hate to refer to the Césars as the French Oscars, but that's the that's the, the, the kind of the French the, the closest the French equivalent. equivalent. Yeah, the French equivalent. It's fine. Uh, anyway, mm. really good movie. Um, I don't have a lot more to say about it other mm. than um, you know don't expect you know huge thrills. Mm. It's a character piece with a bit of a sci-fi backdrop, mm. and really not that sci-fi, like not that mm. heavy. But that said, I think this film very cannily uh, designs a lot of that science fiction stuff. Mm -hmm. There's uh, some bits of technology that don't exist Mm -hmm. that were invented for this movie. Um, There's a scene early on where Ava Green is putting on this weird sort of like remote backpack and she's got little widgets mm-hmm. on her fingers and like presumably it's like to operate some arms, kind of yeah. robot drone in space or something yeah, or but we don't we never see that used <laughs> it's like Chekhov's gun just sits right there yeah, on, the, and, on, the, on the mantle and never gets pulled out and uh, the way they've had to sell this film is it's oh it's a thriller about what Ava Green will sacrifice to be with her daughter and it shows that like a shot of her wearing that thing and it's like oh no this is gonna be like that film Elysium uh, where she's gonna be like doing cartwheels in that thing and yeah. firing guns and no it never comes I, up i actually got a really good movie instead so <laughs> i'm really grateful i'm really grateful for proxima awesome well tell me about i missed this one tell right. me about let him go okay uh let him go is the latest film it's sort of a western okay uh from a director named thomas bazooka i don't know thomas bazooka's work uh and it's about uh, uh diane lane and kevin costner uh, Mon Pa Kent reunited. Oh uh, shit! Yeah, They're, I was thinking like, what have they been in together? They were, I know they they've were been Superman's in They parents, were Superman's yeah. parents. <gasps> in man, in, this is what happened between, like when when <laughs> this happened, like before Superman was when, when where is it happened in Superman's house? I have an idea. Let's not think about Man of Steel uh, because I don't like that movie and I don't want to think about. <laughs> Can I just say one thing before we move on? Right. There's a trend on IMDb. I assume like a lot of people who are listening are familiar with the website IMDb. It's an indispensable resource if you're trying to look up who was in that thing. Uh Uh, Just an encyclopedia of film. I use it all the time. And they have a section on IMDb that's trivia. Mm. And sometimes the trivia is pretty interesting. Did you know that this was in this? Oh, I didn't know that. Or, uh, oh, it turns out that uh, the the director actually hated this performer. Oh, oh, wow, how dramatic. There's also this relatively recent, like the last five years, trend on IMDb that pisses me off. And it's just, this actor was in an MCU film. That's not trivia. No, that's just information on the website that you can look up on the actor's resume. That's just the resume. It's it's, a, this is actually kind of amusing because these are two characters who played husband and wife in another film. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of a Superman film, that's amusing trivia. That that. That's hmm. not great trivia, but that's in there. But like, if you, you this would be like if you looked at the film and just like, Kevin Costner was in Robin Hood, and what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> yes, you're right. All right, people so like is, Robin Hood. What? So is Errol Flynn. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. um, I just hate that shit. So yeah. right. moving on. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let him go. Yes, 
they have uh, an adult son who marries. Uh, his adult son has a child, and their adult son dies uh, in the opening scenes of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward a few years, the uh, the wife and son have moved on. She has remarried. Uh, Diane Lane, who uh, in an attempt to sort of reconnect, drives out to find her, sees her on the street uh, walking with her new husband and just happens to catch the new husband physically abusing them in public. Oh, like yell, yells, yells at her and hits her and then hits the kid as well. And the kid is like three. Wow. And she is horrified. Well, yeah. She goes back to Kevin Costner and says, we got to do something. We can't let her stay there. That is our grandchild, and we also care about her. Yeah. Uh, when they trek out together to rescue her, it suddenly turns into an old-timey western. They put on cowboy hats, and they got on horseback. <laughs> it's like that and moment they, they where you just like, yeah. well, it's like, it's like in Rolling yeah. Thunder. Like, found the people who killed mm-hmm. my, my family. Okay. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Grab, a, grab a shotgun. <laughs> That's it. Doesn't matter what we were doing for the last 40 years. It's time to kill some people. <laughs> he says, I'll get my gear. No, it's it's not bloody revenge, although it will be. Um, okay. They uh, they trek to where the, the city where the woman is living, and they find uh, Jeffrey Donovan, who, okay. is, who is the abusive husband's brother, and Leslie Manville, who is the matriarch of the brothers and several other family members, who all seem to be living in this weird cult of domestic abuse. Oh. They all have dinner together, and Leslie Manville sort of lords over them, lords over uh, Diane Lane and Kevin Costner, that they are sort of, because of the scenario, permitted to be as abusive as they want to be. And there's nothing they can do, otherwise they'll just accuse Diane Lane and Kevin Costner of trying to kidnap their grandchild, even though Mm. he is rightfully theirs. Right. And, of course, the soul of this three-year-old is at risk, and it's about this uh, impasse and eventually... That sounds like a horror movie. It's it's really horrifying. And, yeah. yeah, that dinner scene where Jeffrey Donovan and Leslie Manville are just sort of, like, cackling to themselves, essentially saying, fuck you, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, well, we're Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. We're not, like, action stars. We yeah, can't, Kevin we can... Costner's been an action star. Uh, not they're not spring chickens my point is they're not going to jump through the air firing two guns going ah at this point in their lives could they please it's not that kind of movie i mean if you think about like diane lane's like like robert downey jr is like diane lane's age yeah like uh, he gets to like be this action hero in all these mcu movies and she gets to be superman's mom like there's a real double standard about like (laughs) absolutely older women and absolutely there is and and i'd rather just nobody does the action stuff (laughs) Rather than, I'd rather, spread, rather than spread it out, just take it away from everybody. I, I do um, like action stuff. Yeah, okay. right. uh, when it's done well, sure. Okay. I mean, did you know that Kevin Costner was twice Wolfram Brimley's age when et cetera, et cetera? Um, <laughs> everybody likes to compare uh, uh, Tom Cruise and Wilford Brimley. Yeah. Uh, in, specifically Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. Well, because that's the whole plot is that Wilford Brimley was old was, in that yeah. movie and he's younger than Tom Cruise is now. Or he wasn't. Uh, yeah, when Tom Cruise is yeah. doing those weird, like, like shimmying up poles the point with his is, shirt the off. The point is certain people aren't aging anymore. Have you noticed that? It's weird. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I'm, Paul Rudd has been this age for the last 30 years. <laughs> Everything was so different back there. Paul Rudd looks like this. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, the, the, the film continues apace and they have to sort of make a plot, violent or otherwise, to extricate their grandson and uh, and his mother from this horrible family. Uh, it gets really, really tense and okay. very dark very quickly, which I appreciate hmm. uh, that the film has that kind of moxie. It, because it starts out kind of halcyon, 
has this sort of uh, romantic elegiac quality mm. to it. How how things used to be simpler, and then the death of our son kind of made everything fall apart. And it seems like there's going to be a simple solution, but it's not because they're older people facing off against uh, this entire clan who would do anything to sort of have them out of their lives, including doing them grievously bodily injury. Uh, it's a little bit of a tough watch, to be oh, honest. All right. But uh, the cast is great, and they're bringing a lot of broad, sparkly Hollywood menace to this little understated drama. I keep thinking about when I hear about this movie, mm. like if this were a normal year, <laughs> like again, if this like things were in theaters and like there was still that sort of line that we used to, I guess we still do, but like we sort of arbitrarily draw between. El, like like movies that are in theaters get a certain extra level of prestige, mm. and movies that aren't in theaters are just sort of eh, if we have the time we'll watch it, unless it's like a major release on like Netflix or something, mm. like a major like Netflix is throwing billboards out there for like The Five Bloods or whatever like that. I'm curious like what a movie like this would have been. Do you think it would have been a straight to VOD thing or do you feel like this would have been like an artsy prestige picture? Do you think it would have think... like found a weekend where it actually could have made some real money? Like what what do you feel is like the overall like <laughs> oh, sense uh... of cuz it sounds like this could be just this pulpy thing that like happened to get a pretty good cast mm. or it could be like a real gem. Uh it's I guess uh, it would would have been one of those films that would have gotten a lot of acclaim mm. and some Oscar buzz, and then when quote the Oscar season began in earnest, mm-hmm. it would have been completely forgotten. Nobody yeah. would be talking about it once like the big Meryl Streep movie came along to eclipse it. Yeah, uh, think think of something like Big Eyes. Okay, it got, got some like a lot of Oscar buzz, but it came out like at just the wrong point. Like it was late December, but it was like just yeah. the wrong point in the season for people to pay attention to it at all, and nobody mentioned. Yeah, I think it, it got a Golden Globe time. nomination or something like that. Was yeah, for like yeah. Amy Adams. Yeah. All right. Well, Amy Adams isn't in. Let him go. No. That's all I got. Really, it's the only <laughs> Man of Steel. I don't know. <laughs> Amy Adams was in Man of Steel with Kevin Costner and that's uh, right. Diane Lane. The, uh, the, the, she talks with Diane Lane. Yeah. Leslie Manville hmm. Leslie was, Manville in Phantom, is... was in Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, gosh. You're going to Kevin Bacon this Daniel, next movie sh- Give me a second. Mm-hmm. Give me a second. Daniel mm-hmm. Day-Lewis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis was in Lincoln with Sally Field, who was Aunt May in The Amazing Spider-Man. And The Amazing Spider-Man fought Superman in a comic book once. So it, all, it all comes full it circle. It all comes together. Chiastic structure. What's that word? I don't know what that is. Cir- like circular storytelling. Oh, yeah. Started to come up a lot in uh, analyses of Star Wars. What, is, that, like what that? is the name of the Hill Street Blues thing? The Hill Street Blues thing. Was it Hill Street Blues? No, it wasn't Hill Street Blues. It was a, What was that 80s show that ended, and it turns out the entire thing had been a dream of a kid looking at a snow globe? It was St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere. All Thank right. you. I never watched it, so it, <laughs> okay. kind, of, it kind of like, it, it merges together with that, like the handful of other big 80s shows I never saw, yeah, like, like Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues, uh, yeah. LA Law. We were too young for those kinds of shows. St. Elsewhere was actually a doctor show. It's actually one of uh, Denzel Washington's breakout roles. Mm. And the series finale ended where you found out the entire show was a child, like, looking into a snow globe and imagining 
the whole events. But here's the thing. That show had crossovers with other shows. Those shows had crossovers with other shows. And those shows had so many crossovers with other shows that it turns out almost everything is in that one kid's imagination. Every movie you've ever seen, every TV show, is probably in that kid's imagination. I I am not a St. Elsewhere literalist, okay? I can... (laughs) I can accept that they were doing something a little bit abstract and arty with that end. No, it's just fun to think. Yeah. Of course it is. Okay, moving on. Turns out the A-team is in the head of a child. Okay, moving on. uh, There is a new horror movie out there, and it's a cartoon, and it's done in the animation style, basically, of South Park. But Mm. the original South Park, when they actually used, like, uh, real paper, paper. paper cutouts, yeah. Um, It takes place in a quiet Colorado mountain town. And it has nothing to do with South Park other than those two things, but it's very distracting oh, and, and, the whole time. And uh, and it's all it also has cussing and extreme violence. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there's three things. Mm. So you will be distracted the entire time thinking that you're kind of watching South Park, and really that's a shame because if you think about it, it's just an animation style, but it's an animation style very few people use. Mm. So we just associated with one program. So almost everyone I've ever talked to about attack of the demons the movie we're reviewing has somehow said like, there's a cognitive dissonance where you think you're watching South park, but you're not. Yeah. Uh, but you're not, it's, it's an entirely new feature film about a quiet mountain town in 1994. There is a big heavy metal music festival, uh, during which a cultist raises demons that on, like on stage, on stage yeah. that like, puke pink blood on people that mutates them into monsters that kill people and puke pink blood on them that mutates them into monsters and so on and so forth. Zombie apocalypse, but they're demon monsters kind of like in the thing, like bodies merge together and stuff. It's actually Um, a solid premise. Like demons are raised at a heavy metal concert. That's fun. Solid, well-worn. Yeah. Clearly nostalgic because it's set in the 90s, uh, and a lot of the conversations, at least academically, uh, are about 90s concerns and the way people consumed uh, media and talked about media at the time. It's very concerned with outsider art Mm. of the time, uh, where there are three protagonists. Uh, One is obsessed with old horror movies. Uh, the horror movies, I believe, are all fictional, but they're yeah. clearly modeled after like the a lot of Italian, Italian giallos and yeah, stuff, yeah. like Italian weird monster movies. The worst of Lucio Fulci and Mario Bava. Uh, there's another character. Um, her boyfriend is a music critic, and he's a real piece of shit. Uh, and he's constantly belittling her and her taste because she's into music that isn't popular right now. Mm. And there's another guy who's just visiting a fr- like family in town, and his whole thing is he's obsessed with video games, and he thinks of video games, and again, this is the 90s, so this is not a common perspective. Uh, he views video games as meaningful art. Mm. So we've got this nostalgia not just for horror and sci-fi fantasy genre stuff, but also for the sort of outsider perspective of art in the 90s. And it, to be fair... That's something that the original South Park short, The Spirit of Christmas, was. Yeah. It was very counterculture. It was very different. It, it was circulated. The Spirit of Christmas, I'm not sure if you got to see it in college. 
Uh, South Park was just starting when I was in college. And I think, the Spirit I, think of I didn't Christmas, see Spirit of Christmas until after South Park came like, out. It was, this was of like the late 90s, so this was like the era when you'd have to like, if you wanted to see a film preview, you had to wait for it to download all day. Oh yeah, and, I remember uh, that. Yeah, Phantom Menace, I'm, like a minute and a half, took me like five hours. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. And, and it's like, don't pick up the phone because you're still using your phone line to download mm-hmm. things. Uh, and yeah, Spirit of Christmas was circulated online on like... Not not emailing because it was far too big a file. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, people were down, like setting aside their computer for like a twenty four hour period so they could download the Spirit of Christmas. Yeah, because it is this raucous, unusual thing where Jesus fist fights Santa Claus, yeah. uh, and it's all done in this naive, uh, you know, really, cardboard really, amateurish style. Yeah. Uh, speaking of amateurish, uh, <sighs> that that is something Attack of the Demons has in spades. This is a really, really lo-fi production. Uh, it's not not just that they're working with a low budget. I'd never come down to on a film for having a low budget. No. Uh, but when it also is clearly being done in a bit of a rush, and they're not thinking a lot of their references or their uh, ideas through all the way. Mm. Like, okay, so it's about all of these conversations about uh, 90s media yeah. and the way people talked about 90s media. How come there's not, like, references to actual 90s media? Or... Uh, any kind of sense that what they're talking about will have anything to do with the demon invasion that's encroaching. Or if it does, it's incredibly superficial. Like, mm. there's a bit in the the movie, and there's, again, he, this character is obsessed with video games and arcade cabinets, and he's got, mm. like, a list of rare arcade cabinets that he's trying to find and play. And he's playing this game, and it's basically, like, Contra. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, a side-scroller, people shooting at monsters and stuff. And he's having trouble fighting a boss. And then some random dude just walks up behind him and says, oh, you always got to shoot the glowy red part. That's the boss's weak spot. And I'm mm. like, he would know that. <laughs> That's not some new thing that they introduced in 1994. That's been around since for fucking ever. Yeah, yeah that, that kind of notion was at least a decade. But later on, but later on when there's a giant monster mm. to fight, turns out there's a glowy red spot. Get it? And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I understand why you had the point that out because someone in the audience might not but i need a little more from you because i I, i'm frustrated with this film because i want to like this film i think Mm. it 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 ties into a lot of things that i think are really interesting 90s outsider culture Mm. um animation that is intended you know not just for kids but for adults or for niche audiences animation that's done in an atypical style horror Mm. body horror heavy metal, like all these kinds of things that I think are really cool and like make for fun movies, but they don't come together very well. The script feels really underdeveloped yeah, and, and not in a way that I find charming, but in a way that just feels kind of underdeveloped. Yeah. Like this we're is, just threads don't go anywhere and yeah, characters the, are afterthoughts. It, and, it's not the kind of script that was uh, banged out sloppily because somebody was just so full of ideas. They had to spill them out onto the page. Yeah. I like that kind of mess. Yeah. Look at, look at uh, deathbed. Yeah, that <laughs> is a script that makes no sense whatsoever, but it's kind of fascinating. It's, it's a ter- it feels yeah. like someone was passionate about it's, it. It's a terrible movie, but yeah, it's got a lot of weird stuff in it. Um, uh, a if lot you don't know people, the movie, Pat Oswalt did a whole bit about it. Deathbed, uh, the bed that eats. It's a seventies horror movie about a bed that eats people. Yeah, it's been possessed by a demon. Mm. It's, it's actually awesome. <laughs> it's actually it's, a fun movie. It's, <laughs> I love it's, that movie. 
It's ridiculous, but it's and it, it's really slow moving. It I'm works gonna, on its uh, own merits in a weird, in a weird, weird way, but yeah. it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to defend it as a classic or anything. But no, it's, but it's worth seeing. Yeah. Um, uh, this one it does not have a lot of sophisticated ideas. It doesn't have a lot of interesting dialogue or character to bandy about, mm-hmm. and I feel like the voice performances are like they weren't in the same room. Well, that's they're not reacting. I understand that, but these people aren't professional enough voice actors to bring a lot of verve to their performances. So all of the line readings are really flat and yeah. unimpressed by whatever might be going on around I, them. I 100% agree with this. Oh. And honestly, I think this might be the worst thing about the movie, uh, which is not a total watch. I think it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I just think the, uh, I think the overall sort of cognitive dissonance, uh, it carries the film for about maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, mm-hmm. but then you still got half the movie to go. And it just doesn't have enough juice to get you there. But Mm. I think a big problem is the vocal performances. It feels like everyone was told not to emote too hard. Or at all. Or at all in some cases. And everything is just, I mean, it's not like, it's not like a monotone, but everyone feels like um, they're reading aloud in class. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's like most people when they read aloud in class when you were in school, they would just sort of like they weren't really feeling it. You know, they were going to give like a performance. They were just like hmm. <sighs> to be or not to be. <laughs> that is the question. Whether it is noble mm-hmm. in the mind's eye to suffer the slings. You know, it's like it's not that bad, but mm-hmm. like it's that level of passion. Yeah. And when the overall aesthetic of the film is it's animated yes but it's not animated in such a way that it amplifies emotion so it would fall to the actors to bring more verve and personality mm. to the material mm. than you're going to visually see or the, and they or don't the, or the script which doesn't either uh, well like, yeah but that's, the, that's the, the actors I... aren't performing it you know mm. a good script can come out real bad yeah like that that was part one of the charms of south park it was watching these like little round-headed paper cutout things that yeah. barely looked like people uh say these really profane things and have these really bonkers uh, uh, adventures. Like in, in the first episode, uh, the title of the first episode is Cartman gets an anal probe. That's the title of the episode. And it's about a satellite dish being put in someone's butt. It's like, yeah. if you're going to have this sort of uh, amateurish looking style offset it with something kind of bizarre yeah. or ambitious. And also, and this is just, this is just filmmaking, you know, in general, mm. but um uh, timing really counts, especially in humor and especially in horror. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie just feels really easygoing. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine being charmed by that maybe if I hadn't seen... I think if I were young enough that this field felt like a real novelty to me, that I hadn't been exposed to a lot of films like this, uh-huh. I might be more forgiving to this okay, for novelty factor. Um, but unfortunately I'm just not there and I can only, I can appreciate the effort that went into making this movie. This is obviously a labor of love done by a smaller group of people. This isn't like a big studio animated film. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I do have to judge it as a feature and as a feature, it does not work. No, no, maybe as a short, it would have been awesome, but as a feature, they just don't have the the material. I could could see something like this showing up as a, in short form at like Spike and Mike. Speaking yeah. of 90s counterculture, um, Spike and Mike Sick did, uh, were two cartoon producers. They mm-hmm. produced uh, Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted Festival of Animation. Look it up. 
Um, but yeah, they, they're the ones who sort of brought, they brought Beavis and Butthead to the world and Dirty Birdie and No Neck Joe. Uh, Gendy Tartakovsky like did some of his Doctor, earlier work. Dr. Tran. Dr. Tran was showed a, it. A yeah. Short-lived phenomenon with some very funny shorts, actually. And, and they introduced the spirit of Christmas to the world. Um, yeah. Uh, one year I got to go uh, when I was in college to uh, see it at a big theater in Seattle because I went to college in the Pacific Northwest and they showed the spirit of Christmas. That's what everybody was there for. But then uh, they ended the night with the devil went down to Georgia. Did you ever see the animated short? Les Claypool from Primus uh, did a cover of the devil went down to Georgia and uh, an animator came to uh, put together a short in like stop motion but it was like really elaborate stop motion, like these really interesting sculpted figures about huh. the devil and, and Johnny having their fiddle contest. That's cool. And that's the one that everybody was talking about at the end. Huh. And uh, Never saw that. stayed with our circles for a long time. And now it's sort of lost time. Well, it's probably somewhere. Probably I'm sure it's YouTube or something. Well, I mean, you can get it on like Primus compilations and stuff. Like mm. you flip the disc over and you can watch the music video. Well, I totally need and to I, see that. Now. I'm sure you can yeah. see it on, on YouTube, but yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so anyway, the um, little walk down memory lane. So moving on, mm. uh, it's the first week of November, or at least it was last week. <laughs> and you know what that means? It's the second week of November. Okay. <laughs> My point was the timing of the releases of the films because we're always right. a few days. People sometimes ask us why aren't why isn't your movie review podcast like come out on like Friday? Mm. Uh, and uh, the answer to that is twofold. One, it gives us more time to see movies. Mm. Uh, and uh, two, it gives us an opportunity to talk about movies in more depth because if we reviewed movies before anyone saw them, we might feel a little bit more inclined to like not talk about things in a lot of depth for fear of spoilers. Uh-huh. And uh, we figure, you know, you've had a few days. You know, there's a decent chance you've seen it if you wanted to. And if not, you know our show. You know we'll talk about it in some depth. But my point was this. We got new Christmas movies. Yes. We got new Christmas. It used to be... They, they make movies about Christmas. They do make movies yeah. about Christmas now. Yeah, it's a new twist. Uh, it used to be, at least this is how I remember it, you would wait until midnight on October 31st, and only then, Eastern Time, only then did the Hallmark Channel move over to Christmas films. Mm. 24-7 for the rest of the year. That was a thing. Now they start debuting new Christmas movies like a couple of weeks before the end of uh, October. Uh, Christmas movies are a huge business. People like them. Mm -hmm. They have uh, adopted basically the format of the romantic comedy, which still exists, but is no longer like the major like box office force that it was no longer the major cultural force that it was like in the nineties when Meg Ryan and Jennifer Aniston were really putting butts in seats doing, riffs mm. on similar themes um but that format that uh meet cute will they or won't they against the fun backdrop alive and well in christmas movies and i saw two new christmas romantic comedies none of them are on hallmark i will get to those but these are both I'm, on netflix I'm, I'm so glad you know so glad that you're going to be talking hey, about these do i force you to watch them anymore no, and that, okay. that is a small mercy. You're welcome. I still get to hear about them. This is this is a public service that I'm doing. They have titles like the Holiday Cookie Surprise. <laughs> Actually, sounds like all, a good one. And they're all about workaholics who move to small town America, which is some really shitty set somewhere, and 
you're you're not they discover the secret of of enjoying life uh okay. in, in their ability to absorb christmas one of the movies i'm about to review is exactly that except in a small town in america it's guam this American protectorate accounts. I'm just saying it's usually not. We usually think of like a Midwestern, you know, yeah. Genericsburg, Missouri or yeah. something like, you know, just somewhere yeah. in the middle there. Like not a major city that everyone's heard of. Just some mm. little tiny burg yeah, covered that's with, only famous for like doing really good Christmas. Covered with warm snow. Yeah. I remember I, I saw so many movies in which usually Christmas movies in which people were out in the snow and it weren't no thing. Mm. And people were just like, oh it's, oh, it's just fun, and we're just out and about, and everything's fine. And, nobody, and, I, and nobody's cold, and no, nobody has cold noses, or they're not bundled up. I grew up in Southern California. Mm-hmm. I didn't see snow until I was 20. What? Yeah. Parents didn't drive you up to, like, drive you into the mountains at some no, point? No, God, no. You know what I mean? Mountains. So, <laughs> they did I, I was a Boy Scout. I was camping we frequently. Were, we were a tropical family. <laughs> But I always wanted to go to snow, and finally, my first year of college, me and some friends, uh, we set aside some money, like, and someone like you know, had a little bit more than the rest of us, so it was possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, a whole bunch of people in my film school, got a cabin in Big Bear. I don't think it was it Arrowhead Big, Lake. No, the other one, Big Bear. No, not the other Big Bear. Yeah, the other Big Bear. The other Big Bear, <laughs> Mountain, Mountain. Something. There's another Big Bear. Some mountain. There's a big. There's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a cabin in the snow. There's a lot of them about, you know, a yes. lot of mountains. Uh, and uh, and I remember we got out of the car. We, we drove into like the snowy place where there was the snowy bits. <laughs> and I got out of the car. And the first thing I did was I picked up some snow. Mm. And I swear to God, this is true. I dropped <laughs> it and go, this shit's cold. Yes, it's <laughs> snow. Everyone else was like, yeah, it's literally ice. And I'm like, I feel light too. <laughs> I'm used to because snow being used to like snow little being feathers in the sky and like a in a Barbara Stanwyck movie. Cornflakes painted yeah. white. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was used to. I was used mm. to fake snow. I never really associated it with, oh yeah, it's fucking cold, isn't it? Turns out it's quite brisk. <laughs> yes, below zero. That's why it froze. It's a little nippy out. <laughs> um, you remember your kindergarten science, right? Anyway, uh, where's it going with this? Anyway, there's new but Christmas. Just, there's new okay, Christmas is, rom-coms on Netflix. Is there fake crappy snow in your Guam movie? No, oh, okay. no, that's not snowing in Guam. Mm. A missed opportunity, I feel. Oh. The plot of this movie, by the way, the movie is called Operation Christmas Drop. Oh, they had so many Guam puns they could have made. Yeah, uh, visions of sugar Guams there you dancing. Go. There. Okay, <laughs> uh, Guammy bears. <laughs> I have to do with Christmas. I don't know. I eat candy. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, the plot of the movie. There's a congressional. Uh, there's a congressional aide. Hmm. Uh, she works for Virginia Madsen. You know her from Sideways, hmm. Candyman. Uh, she plays a congresswoman who is very particularly styled after Hillary Clinton. They make her out like she doesn't have the hair, but she has like the pants suits. And the movie portrays this politician mm. uh, as someone who is trying to defund the military, uh, trying to end charitable work, and if at all possible, cancel Christmas in Guam. Good. Like, like how, like how do you legislate that? I'm like, can- about to tell cancel you. Cancel Christmas. Here's the idea. She yeah. has a um, a mandate or a mission or a task to shut down. Military bases that are wasting money. And mm. she has her her sights set on Guam. 
To which a lot of people, and this is a very pro-military movie, they clearly shot it at a military base with the military's mm. like approval. It's shot on the big planes and everything like that. This is, the military is clearly very fine with this. Um, they point out, understandably so, uh, this is actually a very strategic location for us. Like, this is like halfway between America and like China and Japan and all of these other like countries and the middle of a vast ocean. And it's actually really useful mm. to have a military installation here, uh, you know, with all of our various planes and boats and things. And, uh, you know, Virginia Madsen's like, yeah, no, you're, you're wasting your money on Christmas stuff. Because it turns out, and this is a real thing, Guam, the, military, the American military installation on Guam, on Guam mm. has an annual event where they airdrop supplies to isolated communities in Micronesia every Christmas. Oh, okay. Uh, That's they, cool. It is cool, actually. So it uh, it started off uh, where they were doing like training exercises... Mm. Uh, uh, in Micronesia, Micronesia is that collection of very tiny islands. Yeah. Um, military plane was flewing over a place and saw people who were living very, very isolated, and they just dropped some supplies down to them right. as a as a as a kind gesture. Is it like like Dickensian Christmas turkeys and like no, cookies and that, stuff? No, it's actually practical stuff. Like they talk about it. Like uh, they're they're dropping down like you know clothing, clothes and water. Yeah, yeah okay. clo- clothes, water, fishing nets. Uh, generators if they can afford it, okay. you know, like really useful stuff. Um, toys for the kids for Christmas, obviously, but like, you know, beyond that, really useful mm. stuff because they only do it once a year. And they write it off as saying, hey, listen, we're doing like low-flying military maneuvers anyway, so why don't we just make a point of doing it at Christmas? And then all of this stuff is donated mm. from people on Guam. Uh, so why the fuck not? And indeed, the movie has no good answer for why this thing should be shut down. It's not like, well, it's spent, you're you're wasting our money or anything mm. like that. It's like, no, they're clearly just altruistic saints. And damn it, Hillary Clinton, I mean, Virginia Madsen is just <laughs> desperately trying to shut down these conservative, pro-Christmas, pro-charity, pro-military, yes, those three things go together, values. Mm. And uh, it's all going to come together in a congressional aide who is sent to Guam a few days before Christmas to investigate Operation Christmas Drop and see if it's possible to shut the base down and cancel Operation Christmas Drop. There's literally a scene where Virginia Madsen like walks up to a big-ass plane filled with charitable goods and says, I thought I told you to cancel this whole Christmas thing. It's amazing. Uh, the whole does she like peel off her face and it turns out she's a grin like a literal Grinch underneath? That would have been fun, but mm. no. Mm. Uh, but the majority of the film is basically here's a busy businesswoman who only likes business, mm-hmm. or in this case, politics. Uh, that's a line I I borrowed from John Mulaney, by the way. Uh, and uh, she 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 goes to Guam, and there's the dude who is. What's the, what's he, he's called Claws. Like, that says, like, call sign. Oh, C-L-A-W-S. Uh-huh. Uh, can't, and it stands, and it turns out it's like, yeah, oh, it's His last name cool, is, like, Santiago or something? No, like, Santa sounding? That would be fine, yeah, but yeah. no. And it turns, and he's just like, no, I'm not named after Santa. It's Claws with a, with a W. It's a cool call sign, like Maverick. Yeah. And then it turns out he's called Claws because Claws is an acronym for can't leave anyone without Santa. 
Because he loves Christmas, this guy. He loves Christmas, and he's going to make sure that this woman, not only does she not see, and it's kind of like a vaguely Phil Silverish kind of thing, mm-hmm. where it's like he's going to make sure she doesn't see all like the sort of running around that they're doing, try to like sneakily do this charity project, but the, before like the evil like liberal government finds out about it. Uh, but like he also is trying to make sure that she has a good tropical Christmas. So they go on like Christmas snorkeling. And stuff. And, mm. oh, will she fall in love with him? Well, yeah. Yeah, she will. Which is weird because he has all of the personality of, like, a stack of cheese. Like, so he's got t- nothing. Typical male Christmas movie lead. Like, just some blandly handsome I mean, you like personality-free dude. You like to see an actor provide the personality here in a, mm. in a script that has none. And some actors can. And you can watch a movie, even a Hallmark movie, like... Um, um, is the <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the, the title's blurred. Shut okay. up. The Hallmark movie with personality. Like no, no, no. The, there's, there's a couple that is. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold you know, on. there's one. There's okay, one. Okay, listen. They produce five hundred of these goddamn things every I, year, but there's one that was okay. I know you're amused. I was thinking of <laughs> the Mistletoe Promise with Jamie King, where she really uh-huh. elevates the material. Also, the Mistletoe in with Alicia with Alicia Vid. This takes place at a military base, right? They should have just called it the Mistletoe. (laughs) But with M-I-S-S-I-L-E. Or or, (laughs) Missile T-O-W. Well, this isn't Hallmark. And so what that means, actually, Mm. is that it plays exactly like a Hallmark movie, except they have a budget. Like, so they're not taking place in, like... Does that make it better or worse? Honestly, I'm not sure. It's kind of a lateral move. There's some good... I'll say this right now. You know who really brought their A-game to this project? The second unit photographer. Okay. There's some good shots of Guam in here. Some great pickup. Guam looks fantastic, and there's some, like, fun shots of, like, uh, you know, the various, like, supplies being, like, parachuted out of the plane, like, from the perspective of the supplies mm. as the chute opens. And so they clearly, like, wanted this thing to look good. And it fits and starts, it does. But then, of course, there's a shitty CGI gecko. Is it selling me insurance? I wish. Okay. Uh, she, she, uh, the congressional aide, like, walks into their, like, her living quarters on the base. Mm. And uh, it turns out there's a gecko in there. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. Geckos are good luck. This gecko is the size of an iguana. Geckos, in my experience, aren't that big. No, geckos are little little yeah. guys. The gecko's yeah. pretty fucking big, actually. And it's a it's shitty CGI gecko. Sure, it wasn't an iguana. I'm 100. Well, they call it a gecko. All right. Uh, and uh, and it brings her luck. And the luck is it prevents a plot point from ever becoming a thing. It prevents a plot point. Well, here's the deal. Because you think, okay, so she's going to try to prevent Operation Christmas Drop from happening. But uh. then... Wouldn't you know it? She likes Operation Christmas Drop. There's nothing really wrong with it. Why would she stop that? So we have to find something else that could potentially derail Operation Christmas Drop. There's going to be a tropical storm. And everyone's like, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. And we might ruin Operation Christmas Drop. And I'm like, then do it on the 26th. Mm-hmm. We will still appreciate the supplies. Like, there, there's nothing wrong here. I mean, it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, just do it tomorrow. Or in two days, and it will be fine. And I don't know what your fucking problem is. So that's pretty false. But then she's just like, well, it's pretty hard. 
I guess I'd better go home and give up on Christmas. And so she's about to, and then she sees the gecko, and she's like, you're right, I shouldn't give up on Christmas. And so she comes back and says, hey, I think we shouldn't give up on Christmas. And that's when they say, well, good, because the tropical storm, it got downgraded to like a small tropical storm, so Hmm. we're fine. So she believed in Christmas, and it destroyed a storm. I don't think, I think it's a coincidence. Like, it doesn't even read like that. (laughs) It doesn't even read like the power of her faith meant right. anything. It just feels like, oh yeah, it turns out it was nothing. Oh. And then o- the, okay. And the gecko pulls off his face and it's some sort of lost deity from the South Pacific. That would be cool. Instead we get Operation Dumbo Drop. Uh, Dumbo- <laughs> Christmas said, time. You did it. You did it. I you did said it. Dumbo Drop. <laughs> Operation Dumbo Drop is a better movie than this. I didn't see Operation Dumbo Drop. I haven't from, seen it From what many I understand, years. because of its dumb title, people dismissed it, but it might be kind of okay. It's but not the worst it's, thing ever. It's probably not one I'm going to revisit. It's maybe the only movie I can think of that co-stars Dennis Leary, Ray Liotta, and Dougie Doug. <laughs> I mean, help me think of another one. Isn't Danny Glover in there, too? I oh, I think he might be. Yeah. Hold on, I'm looking, up, I'm looking up Operation Dumbo Drop. Dumb. <laughs> I'm doing it. When else are we going to have an excuse? Well, yeah, Operation Christmas Drop is, is not a sequel, though, to Operation Dumbo no, Drop. No relationship. You know that, uh, that Oh, those... and also Corin Nemec and Checky Cario are in it. Oh, Corin Oh, and James yeah. Hong, because of course he is. It's a movie. <laughs> a camera was running somewhere. <laughs> James Hong's like, James... I'm on it. He just runs. <laughs> How did I get here? Oh, there's a camera. Oh, that explains everything. Did you ever see the movie James Hong directed where he owned an evil vineyard? No, there's an e. There's a, I'm, I'm actually gonna look this up. It's James Hong directed one movie that I know of. <laughs> James Hong directed a movie. James okay. Hong directed a movie. James Hong, if you don't know who we're talking about, James Hong is a uh, is a character actor mm. who basically was the go to Asian American actor in movies and TV for mm-hmm. many many in years. Like American movie, he yeah. was like in Big Trouble in Little China. He was yeah. the bad guy. Um, he has, hold on, there's actually, like, his filmography, mm. uh, he has 436 acting credits. Yeah, yeah, he's, and he's, he's been around. He's been in every movie, he's been in every TV mm. show, often he's great, mm. sometimes he's just there, uh, I've lost he's, track of how many times- He's still alive, time, too, he's in his 90s. I've lost track of how many times I've seen him, like, running a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Like, I've yeah. seen him play that role probably at least 50 <laughs> times. It's incredible. So he, he played a lot of stereotyped roles, but he always brought a lot of personality to the, the roles in which he was uh, cast. He, oh, he actually directed a few films. All right. Uh, he directed a film in 1973 called Hot Connections. Okay. He directed a film in 1978 called Teen Lust. Oh, James. <laughs> Hot Connections, Teen uh, Lust. And in All 1989, right. he directed a like evil vineyard movie called The Vineyard. Hmm. Teen Lust, also known as The Girls Next Door and Mom Never Told Me in the United States, and released as Police Girls Academy in the United Kingdom. Those are very different titles. Yeah. Um, but anyway, James Hong. I love him. I forget how this came out. Oh, Operation Dumbo Drop. Yeah. We should move on. Uh, there's another romantic comedy on Netflix. Oh, thank God. That has to do with Christmas. I'm so happy. And this one, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, spoiler alert, you know, just kind of... Make mm-hmm. this one clear. Uh, this one's actually quite good. It's called Holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars uh, Emma Roberts and I think, oh. is it Luke Bracey? Uh, yeah, dude from the remake of Point Break that nobody watched. Um, he, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's fine. Uh, he, uh, uh, 
the story begins at Christmas. They both have a terrible Christmas. Emma Roberts comes from uh, a reasonably large family. Her mom is Frances Fisher, uh, and her sisters are starting to get married. Mm-hmm. And she has she's like in her late twenties, and she hasn't really found anyone yet. And everyone's kind of just tapping their watch, like ready for her to like find love. And like her her little brother like proposes to his girlfriend at Christmas and she Aww. recently just like broke up with her boyfriend because he cheated on her with her Starbucks barista and she's just miserable and hates everything and wishes that she had had some sort of buffer for Christmas. Her aunt is played by Kristen Chenoweth. Okay. Kristen Chenoweth is uh every single scene in this movie she's like got her tongue down some other hot guy's throat or just some random guy even if he's not hot. Was that in the script or do you think uh, Kristen script. Chenoweth is just that much of a player? I think both actually, <laughs> but uh the idea is this. She introduces Emma Roberts to the idea mm. of a holiday, which is Someone that you date on a holiday, so they have someone to go to holiday events with, but it's not a serious relationship. Mm. You just pick someone up, and this is my Christmas date, mm. and then that's that. Luke Bracey... Let, wait, let, let me... Okay, I've seen the movie. Yeah, Luke Bracey, <laughs> is, Luke Bracey is dating, has only just started dating someone. Uh, she invites him over to her parents' house, and uh, she thinks that because they're spending Christmas together with her family, it's way more serious than it is. She got him a present. He didn't get her one. It's miserable and awkward. And he just leaves in a huff. And mm. they both meet at a retail store where they are returning their family's Christmas presents because they suck. And they both hate it. And that's when they both realize that they have a similar problem. They want someone to spend the holidays with, but they don't want the pressure of having to be in a relationship with somebody in the holidays. So they agree we're going to try a couple of holidays together and just hang out. Mm. Nothing sexual about it. We're just going to well, be... Well, where's just, the fun in that? Well, it's yeah. fun because people stop judging them for not having dates. Okay. Or pe- or it's just there's there's no strings and I just get to hang out with someone cool. All right. Um, so they spend New Year's together. Uh, they, uh, they spend Valentine's Day together. Mm. They spend all of these various holidays together. And over the course of a year... They actually start growing rather fond of each other, and it turns out Luke Bracey and Emma Roberts have really great chemistry. Okay. And that's a huge thing. There's also, I, I will note that this movie has a lot of surprising sort of filmmaking panache. I'm not going to say mm. it's an incredibly like gorgeous production or anything like that, but it's clear that they weren't just, look, it's a romantic comedy. We're going to do some high-key lighting. We're going to do a wide shot, a medium, single, mm. single, insert of something so we can cut away to it if we got to, and then boom... We've got Operation Christmas Drop. No. We're actually going to film this thing like we cared about every scene and we found the right okay, angle for right. something and we'll try who, some who fun editing techniques. Oh, I, I looked them up. I, they're actually... I forget their name. Hold on. Let me... Right. Uh, <laughs> let me hold on. Hold on. I should have done more research. Uh, let's see here. It was directed by John Whitesell, uh, who had previously directed Big Mama's House 2 and 3. All right. Not the best movies yeah, in, a, in a filmography. He directed the really bad Christmas movie Deck the Halls with Matthew Broderick and Danny DeVito. All right. Uh, he directed Malibu's Most Wanted. He directed Sea Spot Run. These are all movies that I, I heard were bad by reputation, but didn't actually you know, bother to see any of them. Yeah. He did a lot of TV sitcoms. He did the Jason Priestley movie Calendar Girl. 
where he's like obsessed with Marilyn Monroe for some reason. Well, I guess I know the reason, but like that's pretty much the whole film is he's obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, not great movies, honestly. Mm. Like they're just not. Um, but this one works. This one has a sharper script. There is, and this is this right here cemented the movie as a definite recommend because there's a formula here. The cast is really, really good. All the small supporting players are memorable and funny. And they'll get you through the movie. You'll have a good time. It's a little randy, a little saucy. Uh, but, uh, you know, not so much that it's like, you know, like, like it's it's R-rated. But it's not like profane. Okay. I think it's R-rated. It really hard PG-13. Uh, there is a, a laxative joke. <laughs> okay. In this movie. And once they do the thing, and you've all you all know the moment where it turns out, oh, I just oh, I gave her some of those uh, some of those pills. Wait a minute, these are laxatives, mm-hmm. and we all know where this is going. We all saw Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber killed that joke dead over twenty five years ago. Can you imagine and, what the sound designer had to do in that scene? Oh, I know. How right? much, either either that was a bad day or the best day of work. Uh, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I've been training for this my yeah. whole career. Uh, I've, I've been mixing explosions this whole time. I get to do poo? <laughs> Projectile poo. Um, so I'm watching this them develop this scene in Holiday. Mm. And I'm like... Oh Are they going to make it fresh? Like how? I assumed they wouldn't. Mm. That's my thing. I'm watching this and I'm going, oh God, no, no. No, Dumb and Dumber killed this 25 years ago. How do you resurrect this incredibly old, bad joke? Wow, you did it. And that was actually really funny. <laughs> you actually did a funny laxative joke. I really got to give you a million bonus points for that. Like, that's not easy to do. So kudos to Emma Roberts and Luke Bracey for doing the maybe the best laxative joke since Dumb and Dumber... Put that on the poster. Put that on the Criterion release. Best laxative joke since Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it's fun. It's funny. I really, really liked it a lot. Uh, it is not a Hallmark movie. It is not innocuous. Uh, it's got a little bite to it, but it's also, you know, hmm. it's, a, it's a raunchy rom-com, but it never forgets that it's a rom-com. So it's never, right. like, so bitter. It's unwatchable. It's just... Got some some hanky panky and some oh, naughtiness right. in it, and there's severed fingers and things, and it happens. Um, but it works. Yeah, it works, yeah. and it's funny, and you're, I really, really like it. You're selling me with the severed fingers. It reminded me a lot of Sleeping with Other People, which is another rom com from the last five years or so mm. that I really loved. That was a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah, like just again, solid concept, great cast, funny jokes, works. This is another one. If you like Sleeping with Other People, and if you haven't seen it and you like rom coms, I hope you do. Mm. This is worth a watch. All right, Hol- right. Holiday. Yeah, not a great title, but a dang good movie. So on the critically acclaimed scale, we're going to review all of the new releases. Again, this is so in case you were, we, we meandered a bit or we talked about the good and the bad. It's very, very clear where we stand on the film. So we review our films on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. Most movies are C. C is average. There's good and mm. there's bad. Neither one is particularly overpowering. Yeah. You might like it more than others, but it's not amazing or it's not particularly awful. Uh, C minus is below average, which is everything from we simply don't recommend this, it doesn't work, to the worst movie ever and anything in between. And C plus is above average, which uh, baseline, we recommend this movie, we think you'll enjoy it, 
uh, everything up until the best movie ever and everything in between. Mm. Holiday C plus. All right. Yeah, just a funny rom com. Like I like it. I highly recommend it. It's been a while since you've had a, a rock solid rom com. Good for them. <laughs> uh, Operation Christmas Drop. C minus. I'm very forgiving for this kind of thing, but um, it doesn't really work, does it? And mm. um, the the I, I, a lot of it boils down to that the male protagonist just is bringing nothing to this. I can't remember um. his name. It's the guy from Vikings. Um, doesn't work, and um, Guam looks nice. I guess that's all I got. <laughs> it just uh, makes me want to go to Guam. Yeah, uh, Attack of the Demons. Uh, that's a C minus. Mm. I, I think you know. I'm, I'm glad somebody is trying interesting horror material uh, and violence in uh, not often utilized animated form. Yeah. But uh, I wish they'd made a good movie. Yeah. I, I don't think they did. I'm really, really tempted to give this like a C for effort. <laughs> because it's clearly this is a labor of love kind yeah. of movie, and I think that will read, and I think some people are really going to pick up on that and like this movie more than we did. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it just doesn't quite work as a film, and I do have to give you. It's a high C-. minus. Okay. Um, and again, there are certain people who might really dig this a lot, mm. but this was not for me and Whitney. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, theoretically, it should have been, because <laughs> it's totally up my alley. Uh, Let Him Go. Let Him Go is is a C+. Plus. I, I thought... Uh, it's a really kind of harrowing uh, drama with a lot of good performances in it and mm. a really interesting kind of Western riff without mm. feeling like it's derivative or doing something out of uh, style rather yeah. than you know, the need to tell a story. And then finally, Proxima. Mm. Uh, I'm giving a low C+. Uh, okay. I, I, I think it's an excellent character piece. I think Ava Green is wonderful in it. Mm. I'm not sure this one is going to stick with me for great periods of time, but it is an excellently told story, and I like the ideas and themes that it explores, and I think that anyone watching this will get a positive experience out of it. I just don't know if it would make like my best of the year or anything. Mm. You? Okay. Also a C+, plus, mm. but... Uh, I think I liked it a little more than you, Fair maybe because I'm a parent. It's like I'm sure that's connecting probably, yeah. to the drama of being a parent a little bit more closely. But yeah, I really, really appreciated the uh, that it's a story told about an emotional journey and not about any kind of any kind of melodrama or outer space journey. I suppose so. Yeah. Down the, down to earth and out outer space. All right. Uh, so those are the new releases. It is time once again for the critically acclaimed streaming club. That's right. And uh, once again, uh, every week, the film that we review on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club is decided by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. This week, all of your options were in the drama section on Netflix. Which um, has you know good original programming, but in terms of their like film archive, is spotty. Pretty dang spotty, mm. yeah. Um, hard to find older movies. Yeah, if, um, if you still still subscribe to their physical DVD service, which is still active, by the way, oh, yeah. they do have a huge service yep. still going on. You can still you can, get a lot of stuff through Netflix, just the mm. streaming service, which is what we're focusing mm. on, hit and miss. Uh, but uh, the winner of the poll was a musical, but it's a dramatic musical. It's not... Uh, it's funny, but it's not a comedy. It's a light. It isn't light and frothy. It's actually very serious and hist- rooted in mm. tragic history. Uh, we're talking about uh, Norman Jewison's Fiddler on the Roof, which is an adaptation of uh, a beloved 
uh, Broadway play, right? Tony Tony winning musical. Yeah, from um, nineteen sixty four, I think the musicals yeah. uh, hit. The and film it, was from seventy one, and uh, it takes place in a small Jewish community in the Ukraine mm. shortly before the Russian Revolution. Yeah, the town um, is called Anatovka. Uh, and the protagonist is Tevya. He's played by Topol. Topol plays Tevya. Mm. I don't know why I always like uh, saying that. Zero Mostel played Tevya on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently uh, there was there was some uh, uh, some consternation over that, over him not getting the role in the film. Yeah, well, um, Norman Jewison thought Zero Mostel was to Zero Mostel. Yeah. Like he'd bring too much of himself to the role, and they wanted somebody who was a little bit more solidly... Tevye, rather than the actor playing I think Norman Jewison wanted to eschew the theatricality and make this thing more... It's Mm. a musical. People still break that into song, but to make it look and feel more grounded Mm. and to have a broadly comedic actor like Zero Mostel might, I assume, Mm. he feels, uh, betray the reality he was trying to create. I suppose so, and uh, that actually... Casts a really stark difference between the stage production and the film. Mm-hmm. The stage production actually is a lot lighter. I got to see this on Broadway with Alfred Molina as Tevye. Oh, that's a good casting. Uh, and uh, it it's there's a lot of dramatic things in uh, in Fiddler on the Roof. A lot of tragic things happen in Fiddler on the Roof. But the musical version I saw was more about good humor and survival than it was about misery and suffering, which is highlighted a little bit more heavily in the film version. The film I feel is, and I've never seen the Mm. Broadway production of this. Uh, I've never even heard the whole soundtrack before. Okay. Uh, But uh, the film feels more 50, 50. There's definitely humor. There's definitely Mm. like love and there's definitely uh, affection. And it's not like, it's not like really super grim. Uh, but there's also a general understanding of misery and oppression and yeah, poverty. Yeah. And that is inescapable in every mm. frame, even though people are actually trying to escape it through um, love, family, and religion. Mm. Uh, the plot is, uh, Tevye is a father of, I think, five. Five daughters. Five daughters. Three of them have names. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. The, the two young ones we don't really focus they're not, on. Yeah. They're, there's, they have one scene. It's a funny scene, but they mm. only have one scene of, of note. Um, but he has three teenage daughters mm. and, uh, they are of marrying age mm. or getting there anyway. And so he is trying to find a good match for them. And, uh, it is a town that is based on tradition. Mm. Tradition. That's the opening song. Tradition. Uh, and, uh, yeah, tradition has been ruling their lives for as long as anyone can remember mm. to the point that they no longer remember why they do half the stuff that they mm. do. We always cover our heads. Why do we do this? I don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's a tradition. It's what yeah. we do. Mm. And, uh, it is tradition to only marry someone after a matchmaker in town finds you a match. Hence right. the song, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, find mm. me a fine, yeah. catch me a catch. And, uh, the, the term yenta is still used to this day to mm-hmm. describe a, a matchmaker. Uh, but... The modern world is starting to encroach. Yeah, this is like, yeah, Russian Revolution. So early, first years of the 20th century. Right, which, you know, it doesn't seem very modern today, but when you've been living ostensibly in the past for very, very long, and now all of a sudden there are revolutionary ideas Mm. that are entering and encroaching into your world, Mm. things like my daughter wants to marry who she likes, Mm. not just who I choose for her, who I think will keep her... 
like fed well. Yeah. And so she he wants to marry her. He finds out that the butcher in town, who's actually older than he is. Yeah. Laser Wolf. Yeah. Laser Wolf is an amazing name. <laughs> an amazing name by anyone's standard. Laser Wolf wants to marry his oldest it's, daughter. It's Lazar, not Laser Wolf. In the movie, he's they like... call him Laser. Oh, okay. Laser Wolf. Amazing name. Laser Wolf wants to marry Tevye's youngest daughter. Or well, oldest, oldest daughter. daughter. Oldest Saito, daughter. Yeah. They're both, they're, she's young, though, is my mm. point. He's he's old enough to be at least her father because uh, Tevye says Laser Wolf is older than he is. Mm. Tevye, not in love with the idea, but he's a successful butcher. He figures she'll be set for life. He's, he's the, I think he's the wealthiest man in town. He's doing well. He's doing well, very, and, and very that's, well. And that's a concern because Tevye is, he's a dairyman and he's, uh, he's impoverished. Yeah. And the shtick with Tevye is that he, uh, throughout the show and the film, talks to God. He has yeah. conversations with God, trying to uh, work out his lot. And there are several scenes where he's able to freeze all of the action have a conversation with himself, consult with God, and come to a de- uh, decision while everyone else is frozen around him. Yeah, this happens pretty mm. much every time someone suggests a marriage, whether mm. or not it goes well. Um, Tevye also, the, one of my favorite gags in it is uh, Tevye's horse is lame. Mm. Rather than kill the horse, he lets the horse stay in the barn, and he just pulls his own pulls cart. Pulls his own cart, yeah. <laughs> and then later on in the film, you find out that the horse still there. Tevye is just like, get on you. Like yeah. he just he loves this horse. He's not gonna do, but the horse and the horse even accompanies him. Mm. But he doesn't make the horse do any work. So he's mm. he's a decent enough dude. And as he, I mean, he he says, okay, fine, Laser Wolf, you can marry my daughter. Mm. And there's a huge song and a bunch of you know celebration. And then he tells his daughter, and his daughter is distraught because she wanted to marry uh, Modal, mm. uh, who is the town tailor. Who fantasizes about getting a sewing machine, which is novelty at the time. Yeah, he, he he's trying to save up money so he can get a used sewing mm. machine so he can finally make clothes right. And the actor who played Motel, um, Leonard Frey, was up for an Oscar for this. Film. Yeah, as was as, Topol. as was Topol. Uh, they're in love, and when they tell Tevya this, mm. he's like, "What?" <laughs> You made a decision for yourself? What am I? What am I, just some sort of asshole over here? Just, like, not the head of my household? Yeah. But then he starts thinking over in his head, mm. and he's like, eh, it's a new world. But on the other hand, this mm. is goes against convention, and it'll be a big problem. Oh, but she, she looks so happy. How can I do this to her? But I did make an agreement publicly with Laser Wolf, and this is going to go real bad. And in the end, he pretty quickly, like, he has mm. to think about it. But he pretty quickly acquiesces, and the only thing you can think of, and this is my favorite part of the movie, is how he's going to tell his wife. Yeah, what am I going to tell Golda? Yeah. So what is so his scheme to get Golda to decide not to let her daughter marry a reasonably wealthy man, and instead marry a tailor who's very poor and has no real prospects. Mm-hmm. His scheme is this. In the middle of the night, he's going to wake his wife up, and he's going to bullshit and he's going to say, I had a nightmare in mm. which, like, your grandmother came back from the dead to say, our daughter should marry Modal. And she's like, but we promised him the laser wolf. And I'm like, I know, but she said she'd haunt us forever. And she's like, well, then there's this huge, elaborate 
musical number with ghosts hiding behind various like tombstones mm. and flying around and it's great. If I had known that scene was in this movie, <laughs> I would have seen this decades ago. That's a wonderfully yeah, creative bit. The actress who plays uh, Lazar Wolf's dead wife in that sequence is fantastic. Mm. She's like wailing like a banshee and throwing earth around. It's really cool. It's so much fun. So finally, he puts like the fear of God in his wife, and she's like, fine, fine, she'll marry the guy she likes. And he's like, I tricked my wife. And that's fine for some reason. And uh, so they get married, and there's this really beautiful wedding. It's uh, in the interests of keeping his daughter happy. I know, I know. It's still still, still duplicitous. Later on in the movie, uh, Golda and Tevye have a duet where they ask each other if they love one another. Yeah, it's an amazing uh, bit because, like, their daughters are starting to all of their all of their mm. daughters start finding guys they actually love, Mm. and it occurs to (laughs) Golda. It occurs to Golda and Tevia that they've never actually said I love you because mm. they didn't meet until their wedding day. Yeah. So there was never an issue of whether or not they were in love. That was kind of not besides the point. And over the course of the song, they realize, oh, we do love each other. I guess we kind of do, huh? Yeah. doesn't change anything, but it's nice to know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a really well, and, fun and the, bit. Th- that's something that's in the, the show that's not in the movie is that kind of casual attitude toward very heavy things. Yeah. Just in, in this little Jewish shtetl, there's uh, they just sort of take everything in stride. Mm. And by the end of the movie, when everything's sort of changing, the original uh, Tevya stories that were written by uh, Shalom Aleichem uh, were actually published before the Russian Revolution. Uh, this one's very explicitly about, like, the last days of the Tsar. Yeah. Uh, but by the, the end of the show, uh, when we realize... The Tsar is going to raid Anatevka mm-hmm. uh, just as a show of, of essentially anti-Semitic power. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, this anti-Semitic state has to just sort of exert power over this tiny no- nothing village out in the mm-hmm. middle of the Ukraine. Uh, they're being forced out of their village. This is horrible for everybody. Yeah. In the musical, it's like, well, new tradition starts somewhere. Yeah. Like we'll 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 be okay. It's like yeah. Anatevka. What is it? It's a branch. It's a house. This sucks, but yeah, we'll we'll be okay. Yeah, there's a mm. there's a and that maybe in the in the show, but like mm. in the movie, there's a real sense of melancholy. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and they the way they the last song where they're singing about Anatevka it does feel like a dirge, especially in the movie. Mm-hmm. Anatevka. They they spoofed it in Animaniacs ones. Oh really? And, yeah, they said Regis Philbin. <laughs> uh, this is one of those movies. Which is one of those amazing movies where now that I've seen it, I get more references. Oh yeah, this thing was a yeah. this thing was a juggernaut. Again, this, uh, this was the biggest movie of nineteen seventy one. Yeah, and and uh, this was one that was actually taught to me in elementary school. Oh. Like we learned all the songs, and as such, I became really interested in the movie. The movie was really long. I watched the first cassette mm-hmm. on the two cassette uh, set more than the second one because all my favorite songs were in the first half. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of forgettable ditties mm. in the second half. Yeah, um, but uh, I do appreciate that. Like sometimes it's a three hour film. Mm. It does really have a wonderful epic scope. It's gorgeously photographed. It won the Academy Award for Best mm. Cinematography. Yeah, they filmed on location in, I think, Yugoslavia. Yeah. Mm. It feels... Um, actually, I'm not sure if it was, but um, but it, it just feels very lived in mm. and earthy and 
not in like a grimy, gross, like my Python and the Holy Grail kind of way, but just like it, just like in a, it's home. Like yeah. it's been home for generations. It feels, it doesn't feel constructed on a set. Yeah. It feels like a real place. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's a wonderful reverence for mm. tradition. Well, without, and this is also in the narrative, without being beholden to it and allowing for the creation of new tradition and yeah, for changes. the evolution of. Uh, generations, and that's what the whole story is about, really, and that's but, uh, really sweet. We didn't even get to the subplot involving Huddle, the second daughter, who's uh, dating Perchik. Mm-hmm. Uh, a revolutionary. Oh, re- uh, yeah, a revolutionary who's really looking forward to that Lenin guy. And uh, <laughs> he's coming uh, in, and, and, he's, yeah. and he's, he's, pre- he's preaching, like, a revolutionary rhetoric, which is very dangerous to the, the current state of things. Yeah. That doesn't go great. And then his third daughter... It's like the, 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 the Bolsheviks are almost here. And then his third daughter actually uh, wants to marry a, a Christian. Yeah, which is which completely is, out of the realm for Tevye. Tevye has been pretty damn tolerant like of like everyone like basically like taking away his responsibility as like... his What he has perceived traditionally as his responsibility. To find matches for his daughters, to be the head of the household, to be the person everyone goes to. And eventually be wealthy enough... Uh, yeah. Just to be wealthy, and he sings. A, he sings a rather famous song. If I were a rich man. Yep. But uh, uh, but like he's he been wants, like he wants three staircases in his house. Uh, he but he's again when his daughters come to him and say, "Listen, I found the man I want to marry," and he's like, "Hey, I was supposed to." Oh what? Mm. Oh come on! Oh man, fine. Mm. Like he's he comes around pretty quick. When he finds out his daughter is married to Christian, he's like, nope, that's the last try. I can't. I got, I got halfway through the song that I've sung twice before when I had to think about whether or not I was okay with this breaking of tradition. And I got halfway through the song, and I'm like, nope, you know what? Fuck it. I, this is too much for me. On the other I'm, hand. No, no other hand this time. No, nope, I'm, I'm old, and I'm set in my ways, and this is too much for me. I'm pulling an Archie Bunker. I'm getting the fuck out of here, and I'm disowning you if you marry him. And she does, and, and that leads to a really sweet climax, actually, in which uh, he eventually comes around. <laughs> because of course he does. Yeah, he's a nice, he's, he's a nice he's, he's guy. A sweet guy. Yeah, and I, I really, he's a character that I absolutely fell in love with. Like he's yeah, a really man. wonderful character, and uh, Topol is great. Um, it's not an actor people talk about enough. He played uh, uh, Doctor Zarkov in Zarkov, uh, Zarkov yeah, in, in, in uh, Flash, Flash Gordon, Gordon, which is I didn't recognize him from that. I was like, how do I know? And then I was like, hey, it's Flash Gordon guy. Okay, cool. Now I'm grounded. He looks like Topol. He doesn't look like anybody else. (laughs) Uh, No, I love this. I love this movie. This movie's great. Uh, The the soundtrack, again, there's a couple of forgettable numbers in the second half, but it's mostly a great soundtrack. That that Miracle of Miracles song is probably my least favorite song in the the movie. There's the song. One of the daughters has a really forgettable song about just like love and stuff, which is just sort of generic. Just about love and stuff. It's love and stuff, the song. It's kind of sad. There's a sunset or some shit. Like, it's just sort of like. There's a sunset. I get it. You're talking about sunrise, sunset? No, I'm not talking about sunrise, sunset. That's a great song. Yeah, okay. No denying it. I was about to it. say. No, 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 no. I will, I will not stand for your casting. No, 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 no. no, no. Sunrise, Sunrise Sunset, Sunset is a great fucking song. I'm not going to fight. Mm. It's it's a surprisingly downer song for um. a wedding, but it works. It's mm. a really beautiful song, and I and I liked it a lot. No, there's a song towards the end, or at least in the last act, where mm. one of the daughters is singing to uh, Tevya about like why she's marrying this guy, why she's stuck with this guy, even though he's in Siberia and shit. Mm. And it's just sort of like... Because I grew up and I love him. And I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> cool. I didn't know why we need to set that one to music, but all right, let's uh, let's let's bow me. It's three hours long. Let's fill some time. Um, but whatever, it's fine. It's, it's, it doesn't no, kill think, the movie. I just don't. I think it's a little bit disposable. I, I think the film doesn't necessarily do the show justice, but I'm mm. glad that they try. They attempted to do the whole show like properly. Yeah, get all of the songs in there. They're not speeding through it. They're really trying to get all of the attitudes mm-hmm. uh, from the show correctly. Um, we are Goyim. Yes. We need to uh, need to put that uh, elephant in the room. Uh, yeah. Open it and plainly state it. Uh, yeah. This was introduced to me uh, in my elementary school, which was uh, mostly Jewish kids. A lot lot of Jewish kids in my schools, uh, just in Los Angeles. I was, you know, most of my peers growing up, many of my peers growing up were Jewish kids. Uh, I went to so many bar mitzvahs uh, in junior high school. Uh, So this was sort of like, I felt like I was being let in. Yeah. uh, Into like something like all of my friends were really familiar with. And uh, that I was just sort of a little wasp kid, so I didn't understand what a lot of this stuff was. Uh, So I felt like Fiddler on the Roof was my introduction to a lot of uh, Jewish culture. Yeah. And a lot of things that were just common vernacular in not just Jewish culture, but also traditions of like Yiddish literature and a lot of uh, uh, colloquialisms therein. Uh, And I, I can only take what uh, my Jewish friends told me as to its accuracy, mm. um, uh, how much it actually encapsulates a certain type of Jewish culture. Uh, yeah. My friend said that's kind of what it is. Hmm. So I've taken their word for it all these years. Okay. Uh, I have not heard too many aspersions cast on Fiddler on the Roof from uh, Jewish friends about how it gets all all this stuff wrong. I think it's mm. pretty uh, thoroughly researched. Um, I, yeah, I mean, mm. again, I, I don't have any, yes. I don't have the first-hand knowledge really necessary to make yeah, those calls it's based myself. Based on cent- century-old Yiddish mm. literature, I, which I has would been adapted the, to film a couple times before. If, if anyone has more personal experience mm. with the text or with the source material or, you know, anything at all, mm. uh, we'd love to hear from you. Of course, our email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm. Uh, we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Um, we'd love to hear from you mm-hmm. if you have any particularly, you know, distinct no, no. Uh, uh, perspective on Fiddler on the Roof. Especially, I mean, listen, not that we're inviting, you know, just everyone to come, like, you know, lay the smack down on Fiddler on the Roof. But if you have, <laughs> uh, if you do think the movie gets something wrong, we'd be especially interested yeah. because we've only heard There's praise this. for the most part. I, I know we have a few Jewish listeners and yes. I'd, lo- lo- I'd love to hear I'm from sure we them because, few, yeah, yeah we, we, that's not a perspective we can offer. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so again, we, we only have so much perspective on this one. We can appreciate the film, appreciate the music, the performances. Uh, it's finely crafted. I can see why it was such a hit. Um, and I'm really, really glad I finally saw it. Mm. Uh, next week on the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, for uh, the new releases, the, probably the big one we're going to be reviewing, uh, is the new David Fincher film Mank, uh, which is about the writing of Citizen Kane. I've seen it already. Yep. I'll save my comments until next week. I have not had the opportunity yet. I will see it before the next episode. For the critically acclaimed, and we'll see some other new things as well. But for the critically acclaimed streaming club, we put it to our listeners. We put it to our <sighs> patrons to pick a comedy on HBO Max. No shortage of comedies in HBO Max. This is your fault. This, this is, is my fault. End. I really, somehow I really didn't think they'd go for it. You picked Wild Wild West. 
You come on. <laughs> no, I, listen. I would we, give, had, we had I good wanna, movies on the list too. I want to give our listen. I want to give our patrons so much credit. You guys have interesting taste. Hmm. You really do. You don't always pick them. We put stuff on there that we think is a ringer. It's just like, well, this will be an easy one. <laughs> They're definitely going to pick. Wow, nobody voted for that. And everyone <laughs> voted for like the interesting, weird art house movie. Like, I can never tell where you're going to go in any given week. So, bless you. I thought this one was going to... I think when we put Free Willy on the thing, I thought Free mm. Willy was going to take it on a runaway. People didn't vote for it. <laughs> it wasn't a Free Willy week. <laughs> Wild Wild West is the winner. I've never seen this all the way through. I've seen the music video a hundred times because they used to be on TV all the time. Mm. I've seen a little bit of it on cable once. I will finally sit down and watch Wild Wild West starring Will Smith, Kevin Klein, Salma Hayek, and Kenneth Branagh. Directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It seemed like it's poised to be a big hit in 1999. It seemed like it was a sure thing, right? Will Smith is a box office draw like, like hardly anyone in the 90s, like he was a huge star at the right. time. Barry Sonnenfeld had just come off Men in Black. He'd done the Addams Family movies. Everyone loved him. He was you know, considered like, again, just box office hit machine. Kevin Klein is Kevin Klein. Everyone loves Kevin Klein. And then and that, that happened. And then, 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 then we don't really talk about that movie anymore. Peed down its leg and slipped on the pee. So I'm very excited to really get a good look at this pee. Um, I, I watched this opening weekend. Wow. When it came out back in 1999. How, how was it? I hated it then. <laughs> well, maybe it's aged well. Have you ever thought of that? Maybe. I'm sure if the thoughts cross my mind, but uh, <laughs> now that you've put it in there, sure, maybe it's aged well. <laughs> this, you know, this amazing... Maybe it's like a fine wine. <laughs> He was stifling his laughter so angrily because he knew, he knew that as a film critic, he does have to give it another chance. He does have to give it like a chance to be good again, but he has no faith in this prospect whatsoever. Oh my God. Oh my God. Ah, good times. All right. I was looking forward to it too. I thought the previews, I thought it was going to be fun. Well, maybe it is now. Big spidery poo. It's <laughs> all right. We're done. We'll talk uh, about the, we'll talk about the spider. We'll, we'll talk about, it, we'll yeah. talk about Wild Wild West and all of its many glories next week on the critically acclaimed podcast. Thank you everybody for listening. Hmm. Uh, especially thank you to all of our patrons over again patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, you're the ones who keep the show going. The show would not exist without you. We're incredibly grateful to you. Thank you so much. Uh, we hope you're enjoying the exclusive content we have over there. We got podcasts about Batman, Star Trek, Disney, the Academy Awards, commentary tracks, the whole bunch of stuff over there that is all for you. We hope you're enjoying it. And again, if you're new and you haven't signed up yet, at any of our tiers, you're going to have a pretty big back catalog hmm. of podcasts you access like right away. So uh, we hope you enjoy. Uh and, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at Linda Biani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Once again, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we might read your uh, email, whether it's hmm. talking about something on this podcast or asking us questions or anything at all, really. We're pretty open books. Uh, we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, I want to, in case anyone missed it, uh, remind you that uh, we have a new season of Episode Zero 
up on the Critically Acclaimed Network right now for the first 20 episodes. We talked about the prehistory of Star Wars, all mm. of the movies that influenced Star Wars. And then we felt like we pretty much said what we needed to say about Star Wars. And so season two just began, and we're going to be talking about all the films that influenced the enormous counterculture phenomenon, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. And I'm really excited because there's not a lot of overlap between the movies that influenced Star Wars and the movies that influenced Rocky <laughs> Horror. There's a couple, and we might talk about that mm. a little bit, but like mostly they're in their entirely separate universes mm. and it's going to be a very different journey through film history. Yeah. And I'm really excited to go on that journey with you. I think you're going to have a lot of fun because I know I am. Uh, so hope you all check that out. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thank you everybody once again and never forget everyone's a critic. Oh. I'm sorry, what?